0: to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Saturday, February 18th. I'm your reader, Mary Neff and we are glad you are here. Before we move to the front page we'll take a moment just to look at the weather. Uh, I hope you'll have a chance maybe to enjoy it because we'll have a little higher than normal temperatures over the next few days. Today a high of 40 with winds 5 to 15 miles an hour and a low of 30. Tomorrow Sunday windy 5 well 10 to 20 miles an hour with a high of 41 and a low of 24 and then on Monday winds from the south 10 to 20 a high of 40 and a low of 27. How does that compare? Well, our normal high and low is a 34 for our high and a 17 for the low. But In 1981, we had a record high of 65 on this day and a record low in 1936 of minus 18. Today, we will have 10 hours and 45 minutes of daylight. The lead story on the Gazette's front page comes under the title, Faulty Well May Disrupt Dow's Farm Operations. This is from Marissa Payne, Dateline Cedar Rapids. Nonprofit Feed Iowa First may shut down operations on the slice of land it subleases on Lynn County's Dow's Farm Agri-Community Development for use by underserved farmers, as the county has no plans in the near future to replace a potentially failing well that provides water to the agricultural land and fuels farming. County officials say the well's condition is unfortunate, but the Board of Supervisors isn't interested in funding a new well until it can firm up the long-term plan for the approximately 170-acre development that calls for a working farm, housing, and conservation elements. They don't want to put money toward a well that may end up on the wrong spot once the whole project comes to fruition. It's on county-owned land bordered by Mount Vernon Road on the south, Dalles Road on the west, and the Squaw Creek Ridge residential development on the northeast. But those invested in bringing to life the agricultural portion of Dow's Farm fear the consequences of Feed Iowa First being unable to stay on the land and say it may jeopardize the county's ability to attract a farmer in the future to realize the original vision of the agri-community. Without a commitment to a working well by March 1st, Feed Iowa First Executive Director Emily Renshaw said the organization will be forced to decommission operations, leaving the agri-community without a farmer. She asked for a new well to be installed by June. Renshaw told Supervisors Monday this decision would force underserved farmers off the Dow's land and leave a gap in production and land remediation that could close the door for finding a long-term farmer. Feed Iowa First subleases a roughly three-acre portion of the overall approximately 40 acres slated to be used as farmland. That lease expires in October. The nonprofit has been there since the spring of 2021, when it began work to transition the land from growing conventional crops to table food. The Tract of Land Feed Iowa First rents is home to its Equitable Land Access Program, which allows land access to underserved farmers. In 2022, the organization had four emerging farmers who are Black, Indigenous, people of color farming on this site. One farmer is looking to expand and be the only farmer on the three acres, and he'd potentially expand to 40 acres in the future, according to Renshaw. She asked the supervisors to consider renting the land to this farmer. Over the last two years, Renshaw said the site has produced more than 25,000 pounds of culturally relevant produce for sale in local and national markets, driving a local economic impact of over $50,000 and boosting access to food grown in Iowa. In the summer of 2022, Renshaw said well pressure began to drop below 8 gallons per minute, which isn't enough to irrigate and puts farmers at risk of mid-season loss. According to information Renshaw said she shared with the supervisors, the well casing has collapsed. The pump is no longer submerged in the water and thus is not cooled. She warned that this will cause a failure, resulting in no water on site, and because of the high water needs of table food operations, it is not feasible to tank water in from off-site. County Planning and Development Director Charlie Nichols said the well isn't broken yet and could last another couple of years, or it could break at any moment. The well was installed about three years ago. Nichols said the well installer was pulling out dirt or sand and should not have continued with installation. Now, the fairly new well is in a state of imminent failure. The supervisors in October allocated about $40,000 in Federal American Rescue Plan Act funds toward the well, but have paused disbursements of those dollars while the overall development is in flux. County planning and development applied for that project. If another farmer eventually comes in and wants to farm the entire 40 acres, not just these acres, Nichols said the county will have wasted money should the well need to be in another spot. The board allocated those funds because they do want to invest in infrastructure to make the farm successful, Nichols said. Continuing, but to give the farm the best chance of being successful, they don't want to invest that infrastructure until there is a long-term, full-site plan and not a three-acres plan. Supervisor Chair Louis Zumbach said the county isn't trying to adversely affect anybody. County officials simply don't want to put the well in the wrong place, which staff and the developer have advised will happen if they proceed with installation now. Zumbach said the well is not for just this couple of acres. It's to be used for the farm and the whole development, which is unknown how many years away that is. The original pitch for Dow's Farm predated the COVID-19 pandemic. Since then, rising interest rates and supply chain issues have affected development plans, raising some questions over whether the initial vision can be realized in the present reality. The project also lost its original champion with the retirement of Nichols' predecessor, Les Beck. Developer Chad Pelley said he can empathize with Feed Iowa First moving toward not committing to another season on the site without a properly functioning well, saying... There's a commitment to an agricultural component, whether or not the nonprofit stays on the site. The county has made that commitment, and there's a governing plan that requires it. End quote. One-fourth of the site is to be dedicated to farming operations, one-fourth for the residential component, and the rest for conservation. While awaiting possible federal community development block grant derecho recovery funds for Dow's housing, the developer has held off on breaking ground at the site. Nichols said as part of the purchase agreement with the developer, once the first payment is made for the land, there will be an easement put in place over the farm that restricts it to sustainable farming practices and bars housing or commercial development on the agricultural land. Supervisor Ben Rogers, the only person who's been on the three-member board since the project was first conceptualized, said the county is working with its development partner to examine what is realistically achievable in the next five to ten years and whether the original agri-community vision works in the current economic climate. Rogers said, We have to do what's best for the interests of the project and taxpayers, and not only for the benefit of a nonprofit profit who's utilizing the county land. Lynn County will need to issue a new request for proposals for farmers on the public land. Nichols said that could occur possibly after the contract expires between the county and the Sustainable Iowa Land Trust, also known as SILT, which subleases the land to feed Iowa first. So there's no clear timeline. Nichols said, quote, the plan was never the county would hold the farm and own it. We're doing that because Silt was not able to purchase the property, end quote. Renshaw said Feed Iowa First does have a long-term lease with Lynn County Conservation for more than 10 acres of land, which received ARPA funds. The organization will have to decide whether to move farmers from the Dow's site to the new one, which is nearby. The new site will begin to open in the spring. Farmers are looking for more land than the nonprofit is able to give, she said. There's already a waiting list of 12 to 15 farmers looking for more land than what is accessible in Lynn County, so Renshaw said to lose three acres is a huge amount with so little land available. She wrote to supervisors that moving farmers off the land because of a lack of necessary infrastructure breaks trust with local farmers and organizations, which could make it difficult to find a long-term farmer. Renshaw said the development should have soil and water commissioners, farmers, and local food professionals involved in overseeing changes and advising on Dow's Farm's creation and implementation, also saying on Friday, I don't feel those voices are being brought into the conversation as changes are made. I would love to see more transparency in the process and how that affects the farm and agri-community going forward. Nichols previously said there will be such a committee involved in selecting a farmer for the entire site. Silt Executive Director Susan Eram said Feed Iowa's first roles in the development was supposed to be just the first phase, a way to get some farming going so people could start imagining how the agri-community might look. Eram said this whole vision that the county spent hundreds of thousands of dollars and man-hours on to develop is being pulled apart, end quote. Until a conservation easement is in place to protect the farm in perpetuity, Iram said the developer would be lucky to find a farmer to place their futures in the hands of the agrihood. Iram said the food farming community in Iowa is pretty small. It's not like corn and soybeans. There's only so many farmers growing table food in Iowa. Most of them know each other, and all of those have heard what's going on at Dow's, end quote. Zumbach said the county is trying to do the best it can and said it was farmed before they came. If they choose to leave, it will still be farmed. It will probably not be the same type of production, End quote. We have another local story from the Gazette's front page from Trish Mahaffey. Dateline Cedar Rapids and under the title Professor Testifies About Eyewitness Reliability in Donahue Trial. An Arkansas psychology professor testified Friday there has been research and several studies on the reliability of eyewitness identification, depending on a variety of circumstances, including how a lineup is conducted, race of the witness and suspect, and if the suspect had a head or face covering. James Lampinen, associate chair of the psychology department at the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville, testified for Stanley Donahue, who is on trial for robbery and attempted murder. Lampinen said a head covering, such as a hat or hoodie, makes it more difficult to recognize someone. He said the various studies conducted by other psychologists and research for articles he has written on eyewitness identification found a head covering reduces the reliability of the witness. During Donahue's trial, witnesses testified and a surveillance video showed the suspect was wearing a hooded sweatshirt during the Casey's robbery and shooting of Lynn County Sheriff's Deputy William Halverson, who responded to the alarm June 20, 2021. Lampinen said other factors also impact reliability, such as if a weapon is involved, stress levels, and lighting. The professor was the first witness for defense and maybe the only one. After the prosecution rested, Donahue confirmed on the record, but without the jury present, that he wouldn't testify. Sixth Judicial District Judge Christopher Bruins asked Donahue if it was his decision not to testify, and he said it was. Closings will be Monday. Lampinen, during his testimony, said one study showed one scenario where a, quote, suspect, had a weapon, and in the second scenario, there wasn't a weapon. The study found when a weapon is present, it reduces reliability, because the witnesses are more focused on the weapon and less on the suspect's face to identify them. In the studies where a suspect is from a different race than the witness, the accuracy is also lower, Lampinen said. One study involved sending, quote, actors to a convenience store who were black, white and Hispanic. They all paid for items with pennies and then asked the clerks for directions. A few minutes later, the clerks were asked to identify these actors in photos, and the clerks were more successful identifying the actors of their same race, Lampin said. Lampin said didn't say lineups can't be reliable, but only if they were properly conducted because the instructions given by law enforcement could influence the witnesses on their identification. Studies have found that if an officer told the witness the guilty person is in the lineup, that can impact the witness's recognition, even if it's wrong. He said properly conducted lineups, according to studies, should include several people who are similar in appearance and include the suspect. The witnesses shouldn't be given any feedback from the police about their decision or be given the identity of the actual suspect. Lampinen said he has two major concerns with, show-ups, which is a witness being shown one photo and asked if it is the suspect. They are suggestive because the witness tends to think an officer wouldn't show the photo if it wasn't the guilty person. His other concern is that it could have dire consequences if that person is truly innocent. In a lineup, Lampinen said, the witness isn't focused on one person and there is less chance of identifying the wrong person. Lynn County Attorney Nick Maybanks on Cross said a lineup isn't needed if someone is caught at the scene of the crime, caught in possession of stolen items, or shows the crime being committed and physical evidence found at the scene leading back to that person. Lampinen agreed. Maybanks also asked if the suspect has one in a million features. Would a lineup be needed? Lampinen said probably not. Maybanks was referring to testimony earlier this week that talked about Donahue's unique walk. Donahue walked with his feet spaced, shoulder-width apart, and waddled, shifting his weight from one foot to the other, Sergeant Jan Abel said. Lampinen testified out of order so he could travel back to Arkansas on Friday. When he was finished, the prosecution continued its case with Abel, who testified about Donahue's interview after he was arrested June 21, 2021. Investigators say Donahue fled the Casey store after firing 10 shots at Halverson, striking him seven times in the torso and leg. He was arrested the next day on Aldridge Road near Coggin. In the video of an interview played for the jurors, Donahue wouldn't give his name and wouldn't answer most of Abel's questions. When asked his name, Donahue said no name. Abel asked if his name was Stanley Donahue, but Donahue wouldn't admit it. Donahue did tell Abel he was homeless and didn't have a car. When Abel asked if he had a Dodge van, Donahue admitted he did. Donahue said he bought it three days before. Abel asked how he got to the Casey's, and Donahue said he hitchhiked. Then he said he had Alzheimer's. He admitted he was 36 years old at the time. Later, he said 25. Donahue more than once said he didn't know anything about the robbery. He also denied having shoes. He didn't have any on when he was arrested, but deputies testified during the trial. They found his hiking boots in a ditch near where he was arrested. Abel, in the video of the interview, says he believes Donahue had a gun, but Donahue denied it. Donahue said he never touched a gun. Donahue explained the cash and change they found in his pockets when he was arrested was from him panhandling. Abel was attempting to ask him about the robbery and shooting but Donahue would only say whatever happened happened. After the video Maybanks asked Abel if there was a lineup done in this case. Abel said it wasn't needed. Donahue was the registered owner of the van and of the gun used to shoot Halverson and Halverson identified Donahue was the person who shot him. Moving to the Iowa Today section, we have this article. Eastern Iowa Health Center offers free COVID-19 shots and transportation. The clinic will be held on eight Saturdays starting this weekend. And of course, the dateline is Cedar Rapids. The Eastern Iowa Health Center is offering free COVID-19 vaccinations and boosters and transportation to eight clinics starting today, Saturday, February 18th. The clinics will run from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. today, as well as on February 25th, March 18th and 25th, April 15th and 22nd, and May 13th and 20th at the center, which is located at 1201. 3rd Avenue Southeast in Cedar Rapids. To make an appointment for the vaccine clinic, here's the number to call. It's 319, of course, and then 730-7300. So that's easy to remember. 319-730-7300. In a statement from Joe Locke, President and Chief Executive Officer of the Center, he said, At Eastern Iowa Health Center, we serve a large percentage of the population who is struggling to make ends meet, and we know time and transportation are the big obstacles standing in their way. These clinics are our way of removing those obstacles, so everyone in Cedar Rapids and the surrounding area can get fully vaccinated against COVID-19. Removing barriers to quality health care is important, so we constantly take steps to show how we care about everyone's health." The center said it was working with Horizon's Neighborhood Transportation Service to offer transportation during the clinic times. The service will pick up people at home for free for their scheduled appointments. Beyond the expanded hours on the eight Saturdays for the vaccine clinics, the Eastern Iowa Health Clinic offers health services for people living in poverty, including family medicine, pediatrics, obstetrics and gynecology, labor and delivery, behavioral health, and dental care. And We have a very brief uh, article here, two injured in Cedar Rapids shooting early Friday. Two people were injured in a shooting Friday morning in Cedar Rapids, according to a news release from the Cedar Rapids Police Department. Police were called at 4.32 a.m. to the 2,000, excuse me, 3,000 block of J Street Southwest, where they found a man and a woman with gunshot wounds. Both were treated there and taken to the hospital for further care. Their conditions are not currently known, the release states. Police believe the shooting was related to a domestic incident and there is no ongoing threat to public safety. The incident remains under investigation. And from Aaron Jordan, this article titled Lawsuit, Iowa Parole Board Made Illegal Decisions. A former Iowa Board of Parole member is suing the state, Governor Kim Reynolds and a former chair, alleging the board made illegal decisions to release people from prison. Kathleen Koiker of Osceola, Osceola, who served on the board from 2018 to 2021, said in the lawsuit she was wrongfully discharged from the paid position when she complained to the governor about former chair Helen Miller's decision to let alternate board members make parole decisions. Over the objections of plaintiff and other board members, Defendant Miller continued to assign and authorize payment to individuals from the pool of three alternate members to substitute for Miller and other salaried and per diem board members in parole hearings when board members were available for those hearings. This is according to Coyker's lawsuit filed in Polk County. Continuing, Defendant Miller continued this practice, contrary to Iowa Code 904A, 2A through fiscal years 2020 and 2021, end quote. The board has five regular members and three alternates. Iowa Code Chapter 90 requires at least one regular board member be involved in all parole decisions. Miller, a former state representative from Fort Dodge, told her fellow members after she was appointed in July 2019 she did not plan to participate in parole decisions and instead would be in a public relations position, the suit states. That decision made the board short-staffed when hearing parole cases, Quaker said. Miller assigned decisions to panels with no regular board members, causing Quaker and other board members to complain, the lawsuit states. Miller told the Des Moines Register, which reported on the lawsuit, she did not wish to comment on the article. Quaker took her concerns to John Lundquist, an attorney with the Iowa Attorney General's Office, who instructed her to call the Department of Corrections and stop these parole proceedings and explain what happened, the suit states. Miller refused to tell the Corrections Department or the parolees about the error and instead ordered Vice Chair Norm Granger to help her retroactively add their votes to the decisions made by the illegal panels, the suit states. Coyker wrote to Reynolds in July 2020 to report Miller's alleged actions, but did not hear back. Reynolds did not reappoint Coyker when Coyker's term expired in 2021, despite reappointment being common among other board members The suit states. Coyker again wrote to Reynolds in March 2021, but there was no response. Coyker is asking the court to require the state to pay her damages equivalent to at least three times the annual wages and benefits she received as a board member. Coyker's salary for fiscal year 2020 was $84,365. Moving to the Gazette's Inside page, they have provided a Gazette editorial today under the title, How Will We Pay for Government? Last week at a forum in Washington, D.C., sponsored by the Cato Institute, Governor Kim Reynolds said she will push to eliminate Iowa's personal income tax by the end of her current term in 2026. With that, what has been a sketchy goal of some Republican lawmakers now has the backing of the governor and a timeline. But Reynolds' objective raises a number of questions that have yet to be answered. First among them, how can Iowa afford state government programs, services, and the needs of Iowans without billions in revenue collected through income taxes? During the current fiscal year, Iowa is projected to collect more than $5 billion in personal income taxes, or roughly half of all revenues flowing into the state general fund. Already, in 2026, a Republican-backed tax cut approved in 2022 will create a 3.9 percent flat income tax, saving taxpayers $2 billion annually. We've heard no plan whatsoever as to how even a portion of revenue lost by eliminating the sales tax would be collected to lessen the impact on state spending. There's been speculation that lawmakers would replace income tax dollars with a higher sales tax. A sales tax increase would fall hardest on low-income workers who pay a higher percentage of their income on sales taxes. Income tax cuts would primarily benefit wealthy earners. Consequently, Iowa's tax system would become decidedly regressive. Couple that with potential reductions in state services needed by lower-income Iowans, and the cost of eliminating the income tax would fall squarely on those least able to pay the bill. Then, there's the small matter of adequately funding public schools, state universities, Iowa's mental health system, Medicaid health coverage, public health, public safety, and a long list of other needs. Funding for these priorities is already stunted. It's hard to see how cutting general fund revenue in half will make that situation better. But, backers of getting rid of the income tax often tout its potential for making Iowa a more attractive place to live and work. They point to growth in other states without income taxes, most of which have tourism industries such as Florida and Wyoming or are rich in valuable natural resources that can raise revenue such as Texas. Iowa, of course, has its own attributes, but it's difficult to see how reducing potential investments in public education, clean water, and state parks will help sell the state. We need an Iowa where people want to build lives, not just tax shelters. And that is the Gazette's editorial for today. They have also provided a guest column. Titled, They Can Talk, Still Talk About Politics with Politeness and Civility. This is a guest column from Debbie Koopman, who lives in Cedar Rapids. And it says, I want to share a story told to me by my 95-year-old mother. It was about a discussion this week at her assisted living facility in Des Moines. A new man was beginning to live there, and this week he walked into the dining room and asked to sit at a table with my mom and her friends. Here was a table of both Republicans and Democrats. Many of them lived through World War II in their teenage years. The dining room experience is always full of discussions. My mom loves these talks. One of the Republican women asked, Sir, are you a Republican? He replied, Yes. Then she asked, Did you vote for Trump? The reply was, Yes. Then another woman said, can I ask you why? The newcomer said, because he was a great businessman. The table then dug into their opposing arguments. They discussed whether Trump did best with the funds from his father or through the money donated through all of his political paid gatherings. There was humor. There was disagreement. There was respect. I told my mom I was so impressed by these aged women and men who have lived through so much history. How could they ask such direct questions and then have a civil discussion? What seems to have happened in this country is that we, quote, baby boomers and our adult children are not able to do the same thing. We cannot share and talk about the hard questions without becoming heated. Why should we not talk about politics and religion as a chance to continue growing our perspectives, to first ask the question, then quietly listen, and then comment. Are we so afraid of losing a friend that we have to just do small talk? This country is so divided that we form our own side. We only react to just the books we read, the radio and TV channels we watch, and what we hear at our church. Is this what America has become? Is this what we want for our grandchildren? I have plenty of friends on both sides, and our talks are not as honest as those in the assisted living facilities. Do we have to be old before we are not afraid to ask a stranger about their views? You may have an incorrect view of assisted living facilities. It is not just a quiet, reserved place to live the end of life. They are full of men and women who have seen wars and so much life change and still continue to engage each other. I am so proud to hear how they jump onto a bus every two years and go to the polls and vote. They are not done examining our government and loving America. I miss the good discussions my family had as I grew up. We watched the same news together and talked. Nowadays, each person has their own device in their own place of comfort, and we miss the spontaneous discussions of how our history has changed us. I admire that there are such wonderful bipartisan talks between our elders, now living together at the assisted living facilities, and this is written from Debbie Koopman, who lives in Cedar Rapids. And lastly, from the inside page, we have one community letter. This is from Ann Fields of Lansing, and it says, House File 3 revises the SNAP program in the following ways. Number one, adds an asset test. Households cannot possess more than $2,750 worth of assets, in excluding their house and one vehicle, even if there are two working people in the household or if there is at least one member of the household with a disability or is age 60 plus. 2. Adds a work component of 20 hours per week with few exceptions. 3. Limits the foods eligible to be purchased with SNAP funds. 4. Will contribute to additional hunger across Iowa. And then she continues, in my home county of Alamakee, this will affect 874 individuals in 393 households who now receive SNAP benefits. Over 50% of those on SNAP are children or elderly. Monthly benefits average $152 or only $1.69 per meal. The economic impact of SNAP is over $200,000 for Alamakee County. Why is the Iowa legislature considering this bill? When I talked with Representative Ann Osmondson, she told me it was to limit fraud. However, the fraud rate for SNAP in 2021 was 0.9%. SNAP has one of the lowest fraud rates of the government social programs. What are these revisions going to cost? Who is going to collect all the asset information, check the client's income tax, property tax records, bank records, vehicle registrations, and verify work hours. This will cost more than the state will save in reducing the small amount of fraud. And Anne Fields of Lansing urges you to call your legislatures and tell them to vote no on House File 3. Before we move on, just a reminder that you are listening to the reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Saturday, February 18th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. And now, as we do after each break, we will look at the obituaries. There are not too many published obituaries today. There are quite a few of the, quote, other notices that are really essentially just death notices. So I will cover those first. We have several from Cedar Rapids. First, Naomi M. Brewster, age 81, who died Thursday, February 16th. Arrangements are being made through Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home. Donna May Height, age 94, who died yesterday. Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service is handling those arrangements. And then also from Cedar Rapids, Joseph F. Rossberger, Jr., age 82, who died Thursday, February 16th. Uh, his family is being assisted by Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home. In Hopkinton, Leon Everett Bites, B-E-I-T-Z, age 84, died Wednesday, February 15th. Bonnencamp Murdoch Funeral Home and Cremation Service in Manchester is in charge of those arrangements. In Millersburg, Doris McCartney, age 98, died Wednesday, February 15th. Powell Funeral Home is assisting the family. In Monmouth, Don Durkop, D-U-R-K-O-P, age forty-two, died Thursday, February sixteenth. Uh, her arrangements are being made through Carson Celebration of Life Center in Macocoa. From Rhinebeck, Regina, also known as Gina Steinbrunn, age fifty-nine. Died Wednesday, February fifteenth. Jameson Schmidt's funeral home will be in charge of those arrangements. In Williamsburg, Harlan Dorman. Age 91, died Thursday, February 16th. Powell Funeral Home is handling those arrangements. And from Winthrop, Shirley A. Grief, age 86, died Thursday, February 16th. Her arrangements are being handled through Fawcett Schmidt's Funeral Homes. Moving to the longer obituaries, Scott Drake, age 63, of Coralville passed away at his home after a brief illness on Wednesday, February 8th. Scott's life will be celebrated as his what they call Happy Place Finkbine Golf Course from 4 to 7 p.m. on Sunday, June 11th. So that's Sunday, June 11th. And through the lives he improved with organ donation for a complete obituary to share a memory or condolence with his family, they invite you to visit Gay and Chia Funeral and Cremation Service website at gayandchia.com. Moving to a little bit longer obituaries, Catherine L. Miller, known as Katie, age 88, of Ely, passed away Wednesday, February 15th. Uh, visitation will occur one hour prior to the funeral, which will take place at 10.30 a.m. on Thursday, February 23rd, at St. Wenceslaus Catholic Church in Cedar Rapids, and burial will be at St. John's Cemetery in Cedar Rapids. She worked for many years at Quaker Oats and volunteered at the Ely Fire Department 4th of July Pancake Breakfast every year alongside her husband, Jim. And they recount numerous other volunteer activities she engaged in. Memorials may be directed to St. Wenceslaus Catholic Church in Cedar Rapids or the Catherine McCauley Center. That's at 1225th Avenue Southeast in Cedar Rapids. Next from Cedar Rapids, Leland Fred Parizek, P-A-R-I-Z-E-K, age 85, died Wednesday, February 15th. Visitation will be from 2 to 5 p.m. tomorrow, Sunday, February 19th at Brosh Chapel and the Ava Center in Cedar Rapids. Celebration of life service will be this coming Monday, February 20th at 1030 a.m. at Brosh Chapel, and the burial will be in the Czech National Cemetery. In his early years, he assisted farmers, then served in the Army. Uh, he was married to Beverly in 1965, and he worked for a time uh, at various oil company, FMC Finkbelt, TJ Construction Goss, and later retired from TJ Construction. Memorials, in his memory, may be directed to the American Heart Association or to Asbury United Methodist Church. Our last obituary in today's Gazette is for Novella, M Cunningham, age 94, of Marion, who passed away on Wednesday, February 15th, at Bickford Cottage Assisted Living in Marion. Visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. Monday, February 20th, at the Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home, and a funeral service celebrating her life will be held at 2 p.m. Tuesday, February 21st, at the Cedar Memorial Chapel of Memories, with burial in Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery. She married a Navy man and enjoyed traveling as a Navy wife and raising her four boys and uh, it looks like she was very much attached to all things related to family. And, in fact, her family offers thanks to the entire staff at Bickford Cottage for the love and support they gave to Novella, they say, during her time there. Memorials may be given in her name to the First United Methodist Church at 5050 Rec Drive in Marion. Moving to sports, we focus here at Iris on prep sports uh, primarily, and so we have a Boy State Wrestling uh, article here from K.J. Pilcher titled, Paez Continues Trek. Brandon Pais appreciates the trek more than the destination. He values the work, sacrifice, and development more than any victory, record, or medal. Success is an extra reward for all that effort along the road that led him to become Lisbon's sixth, fourth-time state finalist. He said, I don't really desire to be on top of the podium, the outcome, or anything. It's really the journey that I really love. If being a four-time state finalist is part of the journey, then it is what it is. But being part of that group is really special, end quote. Pais continued his dominant drive to another finals appearance, throttling Wilton's Gabriel Brisker 16 to nothing in the 120-pound semifinals of the Class 1A Boys State Wrestling Tournament Friday morning at Wells Fargo Arena. He was joined in the finals by Lions heavyweight Wyatt Smith and helped Lisbon move into fourth place in the team standings. The journey has covered a lot of ground. Paez is originally from Nevada and moved to the eastern Iowa's fabled wrestling community right before high school. The experience has changed his life forever, and not just as a competitor, for which he is grateful. Saying, Lisbon not only made me a better wrestler, but a better man. I would move to Lisbon in the lifetime after, and the lifetime after that, end quote. Pais has rolled through foes to reach the finals. He has outscored all three by a total of 400, notching back-to-back 16-0 technical falls. Lisbon's Hall of Fame coach said, He's unbelievable. He's so quick and focused every tournament and Wyatt Smith at 50-0 were both top seeds and reached the finals. Smith's semifinal win was much more dramatic. He scored a takedown on the edge of the mat with two seconds remaining to beat trainers Dan Gregory 3-2. Don Bosco is in control for its fifth straight team title, leading with 152 points. Wilton is second with 105, and Nashville Plainfield has 99. Lisbon tallied 87, 3 and a half ahead of fifth place Alburnett. We also have a story from Jeff Linder about girls' basketball. Highway 1 Battle Renewed and the subheading Solon-Mount Vernon set to play for Spotted State. Jeff says this is the stage that Mount Vernon Mustangs wanted and the opponent. Coach Nate Sanderson said the kids are excited. When the brackets came out, they were pumped much more than I was. One of the best all-sports rivalries in the area, Mount Vernon versus Solon, takes on extra meaning tonight. The 11th-ranked Mustangs at 16 and 7 visit the number 2 Spartans at 21 and 2 in a Class 3A girls basketball regional final. Tip-off is 7 p.m. It's one of the three 3A regional finals and the Wamot Conference will be on center stage. Number 4 Benton Community at 20 and 3 welcomes West Liberty with a record of 17 and 6 and number ten, Vinton Shellsberg, visits number six Grinnell. Winners advance to the state tournament February twenty seventh to March fourth at Wells Fargo Arena in Des Moines. Familiarity is a theme in all three games, particularly the Highway One encounter. Solon won a pair of tight games fifty six to fifty and fifty to forty nine in the regular season. Sanderson said, Quote, I don't know if there will be much for adjustments. We're both pretty base in what we do, end quote. While Solon rolled through the first two postseason rounds, Mount Vernon had to grind out a 46-39 regional semifinal win over Davenport Assumption. Sanderson said, I thought we defended really well. We were able to maintain a two-possession lead, and we were able to answer every push they made at us. Now they'll try to contain Solon's Cali Levin, a junior and a University of Iowa commit. In Kelsey Jones and Jenna Twitt, West Liberty and Benton have two of the area's top players. Those two played to a virtual draw in the team's previous meeting February 6th, but Jones received more assistance in a 64-57 Comets win. Benton coach Jeff Zittergrün said they were very explosive offensively. Obviously, Jones is a very good player. All aspects of her game are very solid, but I think we have a better feel now for what their strengths are. End quote. Another win would send West Liberty to state for the first time since nineteen sixty five. Benton was a four A qualifier last year. We need to slow them down in transition, and in half court, we need to be sound. Now, as to Vinton Shelsberg, they faced Grinnell in a Hall of Pride exhibition game in November, scoring a 62-53 to win. The consequences of this encounter are far, far greater. Vigets coach Rick Hazeman said, Both teams are going to be very, very different than they were way back then. Neither team is going to be afraid of the other. Vinton Shelsberg senior Ashley Meyer said, I remember Grinnell is really aggressive. In addition to the 3A regional finals, tonight features regional semifinals in Class 5A and Class 4A. Cedar Rapids Xavier, the reigning 4A state champion, welcomes Marion. Seven Metro Iowa City 5A teams are in action. Well, not surprisingly, the prep news in sports is dominated by wrestling. So I'm going to cover some excerpts from a couple of other articles uh, just in the interest of time. First we have a story about the class 2A finals and this is from KJ Pilcher and it says Cheers, celebration for Guther Cam Guthers' victory was emotional. Everyone from Greeley to Ryan in the West Delaware School District seemed to be on hand to celebrate the senior heavyweight. He received a bear hug from a coach in his corner. Then, teammate Logan Payton greeted him mat-side, followed by assistant coach Mitch Payton intercepting him as the flock of Hawks fans cheered from a nearby section. Will Ward smiled at the front of the tunnel that also included a long line of congratulatory teammates and coaches. Guther said, there was a lot that went into that match. I didn't get it last year. It feels really good, quote. A familiar foe has led to unfamiliar territory. Top-seeded Guther, Topped Independence's number four, Corver Hupke, for the third time this season to reach the finals of the Class 2A Boys State Wrestling Tournament Friday at Wells Fargo Arena. His win propelled West Delaware into third in the team race with 81.5 points, one and a half more than fourth place Mount Vernon. Gether, who placed sixth last year, scored an escape and added a takedown in the final period to seal a 3-0 decision. He said, it's been a long time coming. That one is big for me. The next one is bigger. One of the reasons so many were thrilled with his finals berth is the progress he's made. He is no longer the kid who routinely got pinned. He didn't win a match in junior high and said he only won 10 as a freshman. He didn't get to wrestle as a sophomore, weighing about 340, beyond the highest allowance. Now he has a chance to capture a state title. Gether said, My sophomore summer, I did freestyle and Greco-Roman all summer. I just got better. I keep getting better. That one feels good. Former Hawks state champion and teammate Wyatt Volker has made a huge impact on Guther. The two trained together, and Volker even sent him a calming text before the match. Volker also was expected to come visit him Friday night. Guthers said of Volker, I give a lot of my success to him. He's done a lot for me, driving me to big game wrestling club every night in the summer. He texted me before my match. He said, I don't care about what happens. You're still my boy. It's not all about winning, but that one is good, end quote. Guther has been the epitome of the earning it slogan on the Hawks practice shirts. West Delaware coach Jeff Voss said, Once he set his mind to being a great wrestler, he put in the time and earned it. He isn't done yet. His best is yet to come. I was very proud of him. Like Guther, Mount Vernon's Jace Jaspers received a loud ovation from his home crowd, answering with a fist pump to the upper deck after his 5-1 win over Dubuque Wallert's Jaron. Gilly in the 126 semifinal. Jaspers joined Elite Company, becoming the second Mustang freshman to reach the state finals, and the first since Greg Randall won four championships from 1979 to 82. Even though it was well before he was born, he considered it meaningful. Saying he's one of the greats in Mount Vernon, one of the greats ever. It's big for me to join him there. And Vinton Shelsberg's Cooper Sanders is no stranger to the state finals. As a sophomore, he was a runner-up in Utah and was a runner-up for the Vikings at 145 last season. He has one more shot to take that final step and said, I worked pretty hard to get here, so I'm expecting big things. And Bob Gray, Rob Gray, excuse me, correspondent provides this uh, notebook article. For Bridgewater, Mom is Always side. He says, the Roman numerals neatly stretch across the left side of Gavin Bridgewater's chest. They're not random numbers for the South Tama Tama standout wrestler. They represent the birthday of his mother, Tiffany. Bridgewater said, she is my inspiration. She got a mat side pass because she does pictures for our school. I knew having her right there in my corner. That's what I kept looking to when I wasn't looking at my actual corner so that I could keep going. Uh, He said he's a top-seeded 195-pounder in the Class 2A Iowa High School Boys Wrestling Tournament, and he said that after the quarterfinals. Bridgewater wrestled in kindergarten and first grade, then focused more on basketball until his sophomore year with the Trojans when he decided to give wrestling another try. His mom, Tiffany, said he has so many God-given talents and his strength that he works so hard for, he just blows me away with everything he does. And he says about her, she gives me all my power. She is what pushes me. And his mom says, we have a very special bond. I don't know how to describe it. It's hard to sit there in his corner. But I had a friend once tell me, never leave him alone on the mat. So I'm very blessed to be there. Second story here in the notebook is Sigourney Keota's Rihanna Utterback made sure her second trip to the Boy State Tournament would come with hardware attached. The number eight seated, one hundred six-pound sophomore scored a pin after a first-round bye, then won by decision six-four to reach the quarterfinals and ensure a podium finish. Utterback is the first female wrestler to medal at the boys' state meet since Megan Black of Eddyville-Blakesburg became the first-ever girl to do so in 2012. Utterback wrestles for 7th place today. And finally, Osage wrapped up the Class 2A title Friday afternoon, becoming the first of three possible teams to complete a sweep of the state duels and traditional state meet. Waverly-Shellrock in 3A and Don Bosco in 1A could join the Green Devils in accomplishing the feat today. So courtesy of my kind husband, Kelly Neff, I can give you these score recaps and just remind you of some of the action that's going to happen tonight. In the Class 3A regional semifinals, Bellevue beat West Branch 53-28, to Iowa City Regina uh, took on Wilton and beat them 63-34. to 34. It was North Lynn over Calamus Wheatland, 68-17. to 17. And Montezuma and Springville had a close one. Montezuma came out on top, 45-42. to 42. And we heard about some of them, but in a Class 5A regional semifinals. This is Class 5A. We have Dubuque Sr. at Cedar Rapids Kennedy, Des Moines Roosevelt playing at I- Iowa City West, City High at Davenport North, Bettendorf at Linmar, Cedar Rapids Jefferson will be at Southeast Polk, Ottumwa at Iowa City Liberty, and then Cedar Rapids Prairie at West Des Moines Valley. Class 4A regional semifinals finds Marion at Cedar Rapids Xavier and Fort Madison at Clear Creek Amana. There are no... uh, Business articles, there is not a business section today, but there is a living section in the Gazette, and we have this article from Elijah Decius, Dateline Cedar Rapids, and it's under the title Heart to Heart, subtitled Elementary Students Make Valentines for Cancer Patients. What started as a lip balm fundraiser for cancer patients turned into an effort that's been more than lip service to those going through chemotherapy and infusion treatments at Mercy's Hall Perrine Cancer Center. On February 13th and 14th, nurses in Cedar Rapids distributed hundreds of Valentine's Day cards made by students at Echo Hill and Novak Elementary Schools in Marion's Linmar Community School District. With plenty of glitter, pom-poms, and ribbons, it was different from the usual paperwork patients were used to handling before or after treatment. Judging by the reactions, it felt different, too, showing the outsized impact small gestures from strangers can have on those going through often harrowing journeys. For Chuck Martinek, age 83, Jesters like this come once in a while, and the Cedar Rapids resident often returns the favor. This Valentine's Day, he urged every nurse to take some chocolate from a tin his wife arranged. Twice a month for the last 11 years, he's been receiving infusion treatments for an immunodeficiency disorder. Each infusion takes five hours. As he progresses in his treatment, these gestures mean more and more. Chris Peck, age 73 of Fairfax, says it gives me a boost after receiving a card with her chemotherapy in the room next door to Martinek. Hand decorated hearts from children take on a different meaning with treatment, she said. Now the impact comes to the forefront for her and her husband more than it might have before. Echo Hill Elementary School kindergarten teachers Heather Agnew and Wendy Edwards saw lip balm fundraisers in other states and wanted to start one in their community. Edwards, who started organizing the fundraiser, said cancer catches everybody. People here didn't hesitate to pay it forward and help someone going through cancer feel better. After going through breast cancer treatment last year, Agnew knew the havoc that chemo wrecks on a patient's lips. But more than that, she knew the meaning of small gestures from strangers while going through what can be an emotional experience confronting one's mortality. She said, I think you look at life differently when you're going through something like this. Every little thing seems more important and touching toward you. In today's world, we take so much for granted when you're healthy and busy that when something happens that impacts your life like that, it's those little things you never would have thought about. They make a difference, end quote. So, when Mercy asked if her classes could make Valentine's Day cards for patients, she didn't hesitate to expand their effort even further. With 105 students, their five kindergarten sections made enough cards to go with the 130 lip balm treatments they donated. Independently, Novak elementary kindergarten teacher Jen Welsh heard about the idea from someone else and organized her own card drive, expanding it to all kindergarten through K four students in the school to donate hundreds more cards to the effort kindergartners were told the messages were simply for those who were sick in the hospital but the students started to learn about social and emotional concepts like empathy mustered an emotional salve as healing as the lip balms with messages like i hope you feel better and know that you are loved she said, I just tried to make them feel that empathy of what it would be like if it were them in that position. They think it's just a nice thing to do. We talked a lot about being a member of the community and showing care, even if we don't know who the people are, end quote. Pairing younger students with older fourth grade students, the Novak elementary participants used the chance to just talk about life, too. The kind of stuff we don't always have time for in school anymore, Welsh said. Agnew said, sitting in one of those chairs and being given something from someone else makes you feel warm and fuzzy inside, knowing there are people out there that care for you that you don't even know. End quote. It's a medicine that delivers instant results, Valentine's Day or not. And as we conclude our reading of uh, today's Gazette for Saturday, February 18th, I will remind you that you are cared about. We here at Iris care about you, and thank you for listening. Remember, I'm your reader, Mary Neff. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. Thank you for listening.